It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 842 for the 28th of July, 2023. This week, scammers are always trying to find new ways to extract money from people they can fool. New variants of old cons are common. And for the past several months, phony feedback surveys have been really big. Most scammers can be defeated by treating any offer with just a bit of suspicion. In short circuits, early personal computers had the command line and no graphical user interface. That was the case until the mid-1980s. The command line is still useful, and we'll take a look at a few such instances. When you need to copy text on paper, there's a better option than using your smartphone's camera app. It's kind of like having a scanner in your pocket. And 20 years ago, only on the website, SCO, the Santa Cruz operation, became one of the most hated high-tech companies in history. By 2003, its greed had upended the company, but its lawyers were still busy. It's probably true that most scams are simply variants of a few basic frauds, but the scammers are proficient at putting new clothes on old scams. It seems to me that a bit of skepticism would allow most people to identify old frauds in new outfits. So let's take a look. Fraudsters want your money. Regardless of the scam, that is the objective. And you'll find these creeps in your email inbox, hanging around automatic teller machines, on the phone, lurking under rocks on social media, maybe even in your U.S. Postal Service mailbox, and in other locations that you might find surprising. Let's say you find a parking ticket on your car. The ticket has a QR code you can use to pay it, but no printed web address or option to pay by mail. Be careful. QR codes are handy, but they can be used to disguise a fraudster's website. Here's what could happen. You scan the QR code, and a website that seems legitimate appears on the screen. You enter your credit card information and pay the ticket. After all, it's just a few dollars. Or in some cities, maybe a couple hundred dollars. Anyway, you get a receipt that looks legitimate, but maybe you didn't just pay a parking fine. Instead, you might have just given criminals your name, phone number, credit card number, billing address, and security code. Instead of stealing a small amount, they charge several large purchases to your credit card. Granted, the bank probably will reverse charges for purchases made with your card, but somebody will lose money. If not the bank, then the merchant who won't be able to collect the payment and will no longer have whatever the fraudster purchased. These thefts become part of the store's cost of doing business, and they increase prices for everybody. I laugh occasionally at the never-ending stream of feedback and survey scams that claim to be from every imaginable business. Usually, you'll be offered a fabulous prize worth hundreds of dollars for completing a very short survey. Nobody should ever fall for one of these. If it seems too good to be true, as the old saying goes, it probably is. 
When you collect mail from your mailbox, the physical one on your house, you might find a package from a merchant you've never heard of. The U.S. Postal Service says this might be a brushing attempt. The packages sometimes come from foreign addresses. The scammer will have obtained your name and mailing address from somebody on the dark web. The merchant, so-called, can then claim that you bought something from them, create a fake review that's favorable in your name as a verified buyer. Although it seems that there is no victim here, the real victims are all those who read the favorable online review and then buy shoddy merchandise from the scammer. The scammers may even try to get you to pay for the unwanted junk. Don't fall for that. If you have received something you didn't order and it's not a misdelivered package, then it's a gift. Keep it if you want or throw it away. And because I just mentioned online reviews, give them very little credence. An astonishingly large percentage of reviews are fake. It's okay to glance at them, but watch for reviews that contain repetitive comments, almost as if they were written by the same person, because they probably were. Artificial intelligence is making this problem even worse because AI can create reviews that differ enough to seem like they've been written by real people. So if you want to know somebody's opinion about a product or a service, ask people you know. Ask people you're familiar with on social media. Be wary of reviews. Well, let's get back out on the street. You need some cash. You stop at an ATM and insert your debit card. The machine can't read the card or the slot is jammed, but a helpful person who's just passing by tells you the machine hasn't worked right for days, but you can use the tap function. So you tap your card, input the PIN, collect your money, and walk away. What a helpful person. But the person is trying to help themselves to your cash. Here's the trick. If you take the money and walk away, you're still logged in. When you insert a credit card or a debit card into a machine, it will eject the card when you're done. But because you didn't insert the card, you have to explicitly log out. Or wait until the machine logs you out after a minute or two. That helpful person reappears shortly after you've gone, but you're still logged in on the ATM. And then that person makes several more withdrawals perhaps up to the daily limit. And many banks will not refund money in a case like that. There are lots of scams that claim a service such as UPS, FedEx, DHL, or the U.S. Postal Service was unable to deliver your package. Most of these can be easily identified as scams. Two showed up in my spam catcher on the 9th of July, but I cleared them for delivery to my email program. The fraudsters didn't even bother to spoof a FedEx or UPS address. The ID numbers displayed weren't in the proper format for the service, and the messages clearly were written by people who do not speak English as their first language, or maybe their second or third language. Really bad. Social media is a scam magnet, too. Perhaps you make a comment on Facebook and somebody compliments your logic and asks you to send a friend request. This actually is a long con. Your new friend is really an AI bot who will build up a relationship with you and then suddenly need money for something, for some kind of an emergency. A variant of that scam involves somebody who hacks a friend's or relative's Facebook account 
or creates a clone account and then convinces you to accept what is a redundant friend request. Later, the friend or relative is mugged in a foreign country and needs money to tide them over until they can get their new credit cards, or they've been arrested and need money for bail. That's particularly effective when the fraudster pretends to be a grandchild and needs your help so their parents won't find out. These are both variants of phishing. Spotting basic phishing emails isn't particularly difficult, but AI makes them a little harder to identify. No matter how realistic a message appears, it's always wise to take a few seconds to examine it closely, carefully, and with suspicion. If you think you might be dealing with a bot, ask it to do something a person could do easily. For example, you could type, if you're a real person, type kitten. Your response will simply trigger the bot to respond, but probably not with the word kitten. That test probably won't be effective for very long, though, because AI can be taught to watch for challenges and then respond appropriately. If you receive a message that might or might not be from a friend or relative, ask to be told something that a scammer won't know and that a chatbot can't figure out. This eliminates things such as your mother's maiden name or the name of a pet, but you could ask what city Cousin Merle lives in, where Merle can be any name that isn't used in your family. If the person makes any guess at all, you know it's a phony. Ask enough questions to confirm conclusively whether or not you actually do know the person. Here are a few things to check for email and text messages. Does the message contain poor spelling or grammar that would seem out of character with the person who appears to have sent it? What about the message itself? Is it the kind of message you'd expect to receive from the apparent sender? Is the sender's email address what you would expect? Does the request seem unusual? Any request for financial information or action should be immediately suspect. Is this being presented as an emergency that needs an immediate response? That's a common ploy by scammers to bypass logical thinking. Are there attachments or URLs? Any message with an attachment or a URL should be doubly suspect. And does the presumed sender typically include links or attachments? If not, a call or an email would be a reasonable precaution. No matter what kinds of automated procedures you have in place to avoid spams and scams, the most important protections are caution and common sense. Don't allow scammers to fool you. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, today's operating systems have graphical user interfaces. These are intended to be easier to use than the old command line that was the only game in town until the mid-1980s. But the command line is still sometimes faster and easier, even now. 
and it may offer some functions not available in the graphical user interface. Let's take a look at a few random and totally unrelated command line tricks for Windows. Because some of these tricks do work better when the command line has administrator privileges, let's set command so that it always opens as administrator. Start by pressing the Windows key, then type CMD, and choose Open File Location. Right-click Command Prompt Shortcut, and click Properties. Then make sure the Shortcut tab is selected, click Advanced, and select Run as Administrator and click OK until the dialogs all close. Command will now always run as administrator. And with that out of the way, let's begin. Two useful commands provide power and battery information about the computer. First, power CFG forward slash energy. This command produces a report that displays information, warnings, and errors regarding applications and power management settings. The second, PowerCFG forward slash battery report, summarizes battery usage and battery health. As such, the second command is useful only for computers with batteries. The energy report creates a file called energy-report.html in your Windows System32 directory. It's important to note that not all entries in the errors section really are errors. My primary computer is a notebook, but it runs on AC power all the time, and I never want it to hibernate. Also, the power settings I've selected give preference to performance. Several messages in this report refer to settings that are intentional on my part. For example, the power policy, sleep timeout is disabled. Well, I wanted it to be. Another message, USB suspended, USB device not entering selective suspend. Well, again, I don't want USB devices to suspend. I'm not running on batteries. I'm running on AC. So I don't need to save energy in this case. Another one, CPU utilization. Processor utilization is high. Well, it certainly is because that's what I told the machine to do. So use a little caution as you read through the errors, because some of them may not actually be errors. And the same is true for most of the listings in the Warnings section. Several processes with CPU utilization in excess of what Microsoft expects generate warnings that can be ignored. If the computer has operational problems, the Warnings and Errors sections will help you find the cause, though. The Information section reports details such as power policy in use, the power plant's settings, details about the processor power management, and some information about the battery. But if you really want information about the battery, check the battery-report.html. It is very useful for mobile devices because it reports recent battery usage for the past three days, charts battery usage for the past three days, displays AC usage and battery usage and capacity, and shows battery life estimates. All of those are really helpful if you think your battery might be nearing the time when it should be replaced. Okay, here's something completely different. Maybe you'd like to hide a folder. Now, you probably know that typing percent %appdata% percent in the address line of the Windows File Explorer will take you to see users, your username, appdata roaming. But if you navigate to see users, username, you won't see the app data directory. That's because the hidden attribute is set. The do not index attribute is also set so the indexing service won't examine the directory. 
Other attributes that can be set are read-only, archive, and system. For my computer, the command attrib space c colon backslash users backslash willy backslash app data displays the attributes that are set, and this command can also be used to set or remove attributes on files or folders. So, if you want to hide a folder to keep people from seeing it, you can use the H and I attributes. For example, attrib space plus sign H space plus sign I space I colon backslash MISC if you have a directory called MISC on the I directory. Before applying those attributes, the folder is visible in the file explorer. The command produces no confirmation, but the directory suddenly disappears from the list of files. And here's an important note. This will hide the directory only from people who don't know how to display hidden files and folders. In other words, it's not a good choice if you're hiding details of your most recent crime spree. Any forensic computer specialist will spot your hidden trove in less than a minute. Essentially, it's a toy lock on a cardboard door. You may occasionally need to email somebody a copy of a printed document, but you're not near a scanner. Or are you? Chances are there's one in your pocket. Okay, you're already ahead of me, I'm sure. It's the smartphone I'm thinking of. It has a camera, so you can just use the photo app and then send the resulting image. But there's a better way. Microsoft Lens is one of several applications that are much better than the camera app. It's challenging to get a straight photo of a paper document. But Lens has a function that recognizes pages and straightens them automatically. And that's just the beginning. Lens captures text, tabular data, contact information from a business card, and QR codes. It can also perform optical character recognition on the text and then read it to you. Now, this works in English and 29 other languages. There are also settings for documents, whiteboards, business cards, and photos. Besides doing a better job on printed materials than the camera app will do alone, Lens is really easy to use. Start by capturing an image of the page, getting it reasonably straight, the best you can do. Lens will then show you where it thinks the edges of the page are, and if you don't agree, you can drag the corner markers around on the screen. By default, Lens will save the captured image to Microsoft OneDrive, but you can choose other locations if you want. The portable scanner in your pocket can create a permanent record of a receipt, make a copy of a medical form for submission to an insurance company, or grab the contents of a whiteboard if you're at a meeting. Lens is available for Android and iOS phones. It does a lot more than just capture a picture of a business card, a document, or a whiteboard. Besides recognizing the text, the OCR function even works sometimes with handwritten text, if it's very clearly written. When capturing a business card, the OCR function can recognize first and last names, phone numbers, email addresses, and other common bits of data, then save the information to your phone's contacts app. See more about Lens for Android or Lens for iOS on Microsoft's website. You'll find links from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The app can be downloaded from the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. Scanners were probably in great demand in 2003 when SCO was busy suing everybody it could think of. That's the topic in this week's 20 Years Ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. Thank you.